Good morning. Beautiful day, isn't it? This Independence Weekend. Let's go over a couple of announcements. Uh, let's swing down to number five. Cut to the chase. No service today because we will be having our communion service immediately after our church service. Is that correct? We're still on for that? Okay, and then we will resume back again July 10. Do we have any uh, updates on any of our members that uh, aren't here? Terry? Okay, so he's kind of out of the woods right now for any real danger and, and uh, just going to have some evaluation done. Okay, anything else? Any, uh, most of you were at uh, Donovan's 50th anniversary. And congratulations again on 50 years. It was a tremendous party, and we all enjoyed it. And we hope you have a great many more. And, and you know. Okay, uh, yeah, you're right, it, it is a miracle uh, for Dale, so I can agree with that. Uh, can you give an update on how your dad's doing? Any other updates or comments, questions uh, that we can address? There being none, our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Psalm 2, and that'll be page 844 in your pew Bibles.
If you will kindly stand with us, we will begin our service with opening prayer. Elder Clayton, may I prevail upon you to lead us in prayer. Thank you, brother. Please remain standing. We take your brown hymnal and turn it number 472. <clears throat> 472 in the brown. Thank you. 
Now our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. That'll be page 1935 in your pew Bible. And when you arrive at that, please stand with us. Revelation 19:11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Can we take your brown hymnal again and turn number to number 569? 
Good morning. Thank you to all of the people here in the church who filled in for uh, us being gone the last couple weeks. And, and I know it was pretty <laughs> scarce some of those two weeks with people. But where two or three are gathered, right? The Lord is here. Uh, for Kelsey and for Lucas especially, who uh, made sure that my responsibilities were taken care of. Thank you. It is the weekend of the 4th, is it not? And we are celebrating this weekend the birthday of our country, if you will. Uh, the Declaration of Independence, written and sent, started a war uh, with the colonies in England. A war that was settled, we thought, and then came around again in the 1800s. Our country has been defined by war, has it not, over the years? I think every country is to some extent, and that is part of this world, is battles and wars for freedom and for what's right. This morning's message is, the battle belongs to the Lord, and it's two parts. I was thinking as I was preparing for this one that it's rare that I know I'm going to speak for two Sundays in a row. I usually have to give a topical message, and that's it. I have to sum up everything in one shot and then wait for the next time that I have the opportunity providentially to speak. But I know I'm going to be here next Sunday, Lord willing, and I have a part two to today's message. So today is the beginning, the battle belongs to the Lord, and we'll finish up next week. I haven't decided the title yet, but there are some swirling around in my head. Before we begin today, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are thankful for our country. We are thankful for the over 200 years that you have been a light through our country to the world. Um, and the fact that our country was built on Christian principles, no matter what people say today, you definitely have had your hand in this charter of our country, as in every charter of every country on this earth, Lord. But we are thankful for Christian people who designed the Constitution and had thought about um, how we were going to be different. And thank you, Lord, for leading them. Help us to be thankful as Americans for the country we live in, even though it is not perfect, and we have our tremendous struggles here. We still reside, I believe, Lord, in, in the best country on this planet right now. Thank you for the fact that we were born here. We had no choice in that. You placed us here. Help us to not take our freedoms for granted, but help us also, Lord, to remember where those freedoms come from and where they are placed. True freedom is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us this morning, unstop our ears, keep our minds clear. A lot of us are weary, not much sleep last night, Lord, and that, too, is providential. So, Father, I pray for your blessing. May your spirit settle on your people today and on the word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> With the recent Supreme Court decisions concerning the reversal of abortion for any and all reason and the right of American citizens to pray and exercise their faith freely, openly, and without interference, and other lesser decisions that seem to open the doors to other reversals of bad American policies and law, we as Christians should be rejoicing today. Truly, those of us who are in the family of God rejoice when good triumphs over evil. 
I dare say there are many not in the family of God who also rejoice when things and events happen like this as well. That is due to the moral law of God being written on their hearts, but more on that later. Even while celebrating victories, I wonder if we have some of the following questions lingering in our minds. Do we believe that change is happening fast enough? Do we believe that good is winning the war? Are we discouraged when events and opinions move away from biblical values? Are we, dare I say it, frustrated with the progress of good within this world? Humans have a terrible trait of taking credit from others for themselves and also giving credit to the wrong person. And we as Christians need to understand the real reason for any success obtained here in this wicked earth, and that is this. Jesus Christ is advancing his kingdom. In fact, he hasn't stopped advancing his kingdom, and it is currently progressing at the proper and God-determined rate of advancement. Nothing has thwarted, slowed, or forestalled it, ever. These recently announced decisions by our highest court overturning, in some cases, precedents that have been in place for almost 50 years are not late in arriving, nor are they merely the decisions of nine people in a world of billions, nor are they necessarily permanent, as they could be overturned by a future court. What we can say with certainty is this, God willed that these wicked decisions would come to an end in the year 2022. If they are overturned again in the future, God will eventually overturn them forever. And lastly, the planning of all these decisions and actions started a long, long time ago. As I was listening to some pundits talk about the course of events that led us to this point in our history, I was particularly drawn to the discussion over the failures of previous conservative presidents who had ample opportunity to appoint conservative justices to the Supreme Court. I was reminded that most of them failed to do so during their term. At the time, I do recall being fairly upset with the appointments, and I thought about what opportunities were lost due to these failures. But in recent times, former President Donald Trump appointed three conservative justices that were instrumental in bringing about these decisions. In a span of four years, he was able to correct decades of bad decisions by his conservative predecessors. Imagine our country if Hillary Clinton had been president instead. And I am positive we would not be celebrating as much today. Even in saying so, I know that that possibility was never a possibility. Now that events have come to pass, we believe in a sovereign, omnipotent, and omniscient God. He has always had these events planned for our country and for us to be living during their occurrence. The problem is, we don't know everything. Thus, we worry about events that we think could be possibilities. But with a completely sovereign God, there are no possibilities, only complete certainties. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Matthew 6, 25-34 This morning, I want to begin a short two-part series of messages concerning the real battle that we are in. This week, we look at the actual battle being waged. Who are the participants, and why are they fighting? What's at stake? Where do we fit in this battle? First, within the real battle, who is fighting? In order for there to be conflict, at least two parties have to disagree over something. Or someone did something that offended or hurt another party. If you look at the recent conflict between Russia and Ukraine, the country of Russia seeks to protect itself from the Western countries that are close to its borders. It considers Ukraine to be part of their original territory and not a separate country, and therefore the leadership and people of Russia have invaded Ukraine. Ukraine, on the other hand, sees their land as their land and not as an extension of Russia. In addition, to the invasion, due to the invasion by Russian forces, Ukraine has lost people and territory. And there's much more to this conflict than what I've just mentioned, but there's enough there for these two countries to be at war. At the center of any conflict is the definition of truth. In this example, either Ukraine is a part of Russia that needs to be reunited, or it isn't. And both statements cannot be true at the same time. It is possible that both statements can be false, but diametrically opposed statements cannot both be true. At the crux of the issue, Russia and Ukraine do not agree on what is true. So what is the core disagreement or harm done within this real battle that we look at today? Who are the combatants? The disagreement is much more than a trifle miscommunication. It is actually much more than a disagreement. What is at the core of this ancient war is that one combatant is claiming that they are the other, when indeed they are not. Let's look at two passages of scripture that outline this issue. Turn, if you will, to Isaiah 14, and we'll read 12 through 20. Isaiah 14, 12 through 20. Verse 12 reads, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. 
I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All of the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land, you have slain your people. Turn with me again now to Ezekiel 28, the first 19 verses of that passage, Ezekiel 28. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man, and no God. Though you make your heart like the heart of a God, you are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding you have made wealth for yourself, and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and your, in your trade you have increased your wealth, and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore behold I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you say, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God, in the hands of those who slay you? You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Now down to verse 12. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless. In your ways from the day you were created, till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes upon you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst, 
It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end, and shall no more, and shall be no more forever. You know, maybe some of us might look back to the fall of Adam and Eve as the beginning of hostilities with God. But the truth is, God had at least one rebellious creature. But he very well could have had thousands of rebellious creatures before Adam and Eve ever thought of rebelling. The war, brethren, is between God and all rebellious creatures. And the first rebellious creature being Satan. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Revelation 12, 7-9. Brethren, war did not originate on earth between countries or people groups. No, war originated in heaven between those who believe and obey God and those who choose to believe the lie that Satan could be God. This lie that was conceived in pride and is nourished through unceasing deception continues to be the lie, the contention of the truth over which all hostilities with God remain kindled. The contention boils down to this. Who exactly is God? Is the creator God or is the creature God? This, the importance of this fundamental understanding of who God is shapes all of reality. If there is a God who created all things, then all things created are owned by the Creator God. And we understand this concept well. If you build a house, paint a picture, write a book, mold a sculpture, bake some bread, etc., all of us understand that what was made belongs to the Maker. You may do with your creation as you wish, and no one can legally say anything to you about it. You may burn the house down, rip the picture to shreds, bury the book in the ground, shatter the sculpture with a hammer, or simply let the bread rot. People may question the prudence of these actions, but they cannot question your right to do with them as you see fit. We would find it irrational for someone to build a house and then the house take ownership of the builder. Let this sink in. God has a right, a right like no other right in this universe, to do with his creations as he sees fit. Everything here, including me, including you, belong to God. You did not make yourself. No, you were made. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Psalm 100, verse 3. So Satan, the creature, says that he will be like the Most High, that is God. The absurdity of this statement from a creature is great. Can a creature be given greater honor or power than the person who formed it? Can Satan create? Can he speak and have something come to be? 
Certainly this power belongs to God and God alone, and certainly Satan knows this. So what is it that Satan wants? He wants the glory, the honor, and the worship that is rightfully due God to at least be misdirected or thwarted. In addition, he would prefer to receive God's glory, honor, and worship himself. Simply put, Satan wants the credit for God's work and character. And let's look at his interaction with Adam and Eve. If you will, turn to Genesis 3, at the beginning of your Bible's not far to go. Genesis 3, the fall, verses 1 through 7. And we'll see him in action. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took up its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Satan's tactics. First, he tries to cast doubt on what Eve remembers from God's directive. Then, after establishing doubt, he directly calls God a liar. Now, you'll find that in verse 4. Thirdly, he masterfully reveals a truth in verse 5. And it sounds like this truth will be beneficial to Eve, but we know that it will not. Is it true that their eyes would be opened? Yes. Is it true that they now know good and evil? Yes. Is it good that they now know both good and evil. If you have never pondered that question, let me ask you what you believe heaven to be like. Is there evil in heaven? No. Is that a good thing? Yes. (laughs) Brethren, sometimes knowledge, as outlined by these events in Scripture, is not always a good thing. I don't have to know everything. First of all, I can't handle knowing everything. And I wish Adam and Eve didn't know about good and evil. And I wish I did not know evil and wickedness myself. Someday, I won't. The stage for conflict is set. The creation says he will be like God. This is impossible and untrue. God is truth, among other things, and cannot abide this. In addition, this creation has done damage to God's perfect world. He has murdered mankind the creature that bears God's image and is the end cap of God's creation. What is God to do? Well, he could have taken the proverbial hammer to the sculpture and started over. That certainly is his prerogative. And, by the way, he will partially do this at the end of all time. But there is something different about God than other would-be creators. God actually loves his creation 
and has designed a process of restoration and recovery. And part of this process includes dealing with rebellion against him, otherwise known as sin. Thus, there's war in heaven. Satan and his angels are unable to overcome Michael and his angels and are expelled from heaven. End of the war, right? Wrong. If we pick up our reading in the events of Revelation 12, starting with verse 13, there's more. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Brethren, this ancient war still rages today. Satan has not given up the fight. If anything, his attacks have become more vicious as he knows his time is short. I can say with every confidence that every conflict ever faced on this planet, past, present, and future, stems from and is the retelling of the original conflict. And so from the beginning of time, from the beginning of the war, from the initial discovery of pride and rebellion, God has said the battle belongs to the Lord. There are a great many examples of God's involvement in war within Scripture. Let's look at some together. First off, the fall of Jericho. You'll find that in Joshua 5, verse 13 and following. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped, and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for this place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because, the people, because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men in valor. You shall march around the city, all of the men of the war, going around the city once. This, thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Now we know from the account that the walls did fall down, and, and everything that was in the city was destroyed, except for Rahab and her family. Old and young, women and children, livestock and all, were slaughtered. The precious metals taken into the house of the Lord, and the city was burned. Ultimately, Joshua pronounced a curse on the person who would undertake the rebuilding of that city. It is important to see, 
at the beginning of this account that Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army. It is he who tells Joshua what to do. In a similar fashion as Moses and the burning bush, Joshua is instructed to remove his sandals as the place he is on is holy. In addition, Joshua bows down and worships the commander. If the commander had been an angel, we would have seen them forbid Joshua from worshiping them. Every angel knows about Satan's sin. It is safe then to assume that this commander of the Lord's army is none other than pre-incarnate King Jesus. It is he that will defeat the impressively fortified city of Jericho. No wall created, made by created hands out of created dirt, water, and mortar stands a chance against the one who spoke them all into existence. No, these walls will fall in obedience to their king, and they will offer the wicked inhabitants contained within whose trust for survival lies solely in their strength, no protection from the sword. What will you do when King Jesus comes to tear down the walls you have built? I would offer that we as Americans have often done the same as the inhabitants of Jericho. We have a great army. The strength of our armed forces is unequaled in this modern world. We have great technological armaments designed to keep our enemies at a safe distance. But brethren, if the Ancient of Days has designed and planned for America to fall like Jericho, we will fall. No amount of trust in our contrived defenses will keep us safe against the drawn sword of Jesus Christ. Where is your trust? The battle belongs to the Lord. And what of the exodus from Egypt Israel is a fledgling nation. It has no army and no, any weapons, and it is being pursued by Egypt, a nation with a great army. By all intents and purposes, Israel is going to be destroyed easily by its enemies. Yet God intervenes. Exodus 14, verses 16 through 31. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavy. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen, 
So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You know, we often stop with the account of what happened that day, but we should venture further into God's word. After witnessing what happened to the Egyptians, the people of God worshipped him with a song. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Exodus 15, the first three verses. Brethren, how often do you praise God for his salvation? Is your response to God's powerful deliverance praise for him? Or do your lips praise another? Worse yet, are your lips silent? A great part of glory, brethren, will be about praising God for what he has done, namely triumphing over his enemies. If we keep silent, the rocks will cry out. God must and will be praised. And we should want to do so willingly. Another account, 2 Kings, uh, chapter 6, verses 8 and following. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such place shall, my, shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not, place, do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to, him, to them, Will you not show me who is of us and who is for the king of Israel? And, no one, and one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha. The prophet who is of Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened his eyes, and he saw and behold, beheld, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I do wonder at times if the army of God is just out of sight for us. Angels existed in biblical times, and they continue to exist now. They continue to do the bidding of their master. And I wonder how many events in history have been decided by the direct intervention of the king 
and his fair army, unseen to weak human eyes. For the Christian, we not need to see physically how things are happening to know that God has moved and acted. I may not be able to witness the working, but I must respond with praise to God for the observable outcome. Let's look at one more similar passage, this time in the New Testament, Matthew 26, starting with verse 50. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant to the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Legions of angels at Jesus' beck and call. Twelve of them. It certainly stands to reason that the number of angels would be sufficient to free Christ from his captors. Here is Jesus the King, oppressed and taken captive by his creation, and yet remaining, reminding his disciples who he has warned that these events would happen, that he is still in control and things are progressing as they should. I wonder that as these events transpired what the angelic host was thinking. They who rejoiced in great multitudes announcing his birth just some 30 years earlier now must restrain themselves from acting as their creator and king and their commander is mocked, beaten, struck, spit on, and ultimately crucified by degenerate and wicked creatures. God has not revealed in Scripture if he has shared his plans with them. They may have just been told, Obey, and it was sufficient. In all these accounts, and many more within Scripture, we see God moving behind the scenes, setting up contests with kings, gods, and Satan himself in the account of Job. This is the war that wages and rages on. This is the real and only war. Everything else, no matter how large or cataclysmic by human standards, is a mere skirmish in the grand account of history. It is, always has been, and in the future will be, God's war. It is his battle, and he will win it. There is another battle raging on this earth it is the battle for men's souls. God has physically put wicked men to death, either by invading armies, being swallowed up by the earth as in Korah's rebellion, or even coming close to annihilating all of mankind in the flood of Noah. But God is actively advancing his kingdom through the conversion of men. You see, God is waging a war for the minds of men. He takes them out of the enemy kingdom and places them in his family. What a wondrous strategy. God causes many from Satan's kingdom to defect. Paul described the war in this way in 2 Corinthians. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. 
You know, God says about his word that it will not return to him void. Meaning that when his word is heard, it will have an effect that brings him glory. God's word is alive, and it is the truth. Subsequently, men know the truth when they hear it. This is due also to God writing his law on their hearts. Men can easily argue with men. One opinion from ignorance against another is folly. But no man can argue with the word of God. There can be no appeal. There is no debate. When God quickens the heart of an unbeliever, there will be no retreat. That person permanently, instantly transforms from death to life, never to die again. Satan irreparably loses a minion and God simultaneously adopts another sibling into the family of God. Satan is powerless to hold on and must yield to his creator and his king. There is no tug of war over the individual. There is no struggle. Jesus says, come, and we come. This is God's long game plan. Since the fall of man, for thousands of years, one by one by one by one, we come out of the darkness into unending light, out of oppression and into a family, out of death and into life abundant. What king has ever waged this kind of war? What king has this kind of power? Only Christ, the living king, can do this. What of you this morning? Were you oblivious to this war raging about you? Do you know that you're in it? Every single person is on a side in this war. There is no neutral position. Whose side are you on? You may think to yourself, well, I'm not at war with God. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus Christ. So does Satan and his demons. They, quite frankly, have a better understanding of who God and Jesus Christ are than most people. Let me demonstrate for, for you where your heart may be concerning God. Among other commands in Scripture, God demands that you not murder anyone. Good so far? Hopefully so. He demands that you do not commit adultery. God demands that you do not steal. God demands that you not take his name in vain. God demands that you do not lie. Harder yet, God says that if you hate someone, it is like you have murdered them in your heart. Even though that person is still physically alive, they are dead to you. God also says that you are not to look lustfully at someone. That that is the equivalent of adultery of the heart. And it is the same as committing the act. Now if you bristle at these commands, your heart is telling you where you are in this fight. Who is this God who commands me? I will not do what he wants. I will do what I want. God also demands that we worship him and him alone. Do you worship God? You know, coming to church does not make you a worshiper of God. I dare say many people come to church thinking that they are worshiping, but they are merely attending. Worship is an active process. 
And if the idea of worshiping God is an unwelcome concept, let me state some words you may find more to your liking. I do what I like. I do what I think is right. I do not answer to or need a worship or need to worship a higher power. I am sufficient for my own needs. One of Satan's master skills is, he, is his ability to, to deceive. If you are dependent on food and water to live, you are not sufficient for your own needs and you are deceived. If you cannot live without air, then you are not sufficient for your own needs and you are deceived. If you cannot consciously fight off microscopic organisms constantly attacking your body, you are not sufficient for your own needs and you are deceived. If you think that there is no master designer and creator after looking at the complexity of any living organism such as yourself, yet completely understand the building that you're currently occupying was designed, built, and maintained by men, you are deceived. If you believe chance and a big bang produced such an expansive universe made with building blocks so tiny we still haven't been able to definitively say that we've discovered the smallest one, you are deceived. If you believe that we evolved from lower life forms and yet there's not one shred of evidence amongst the fossil record to show any transformations from one species to another when there should be ample examples, you are deceived. If you have no answer for the massive amount of perfectly preserved aquatic fossils atop every mountain range in this world and still believe there was no global flood, you are deceived. And if you believe that you are at peace with God, because you believe he exists, yet at the same time care not about doing what he says you are to do, and you would rather do what you want to do, you are deceived. You are at war with God, and he is at war with you. This is what God says. For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If you belong in the group all, or everyone then God is speaking about you. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Romans 14.10-12 For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. 
So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. How will that go for you? You who have served yourself. There is coming a reckoning for the enemies of God. In the end, God is victorious. More about that next week. But nonetheless, God removes his enemies from his presence, a place none of us have ever experienced in this life and will not ever want to be. They are removed to a lake of burning fire and forgotten for the rest of eternity. Being an enemy of God is where all of us start. No one starts their life in the kingdom of God. How do we find peace within this ancient war? Well, as we've read, no one seeks peace with God. So God seeks peace with himself on our behalf. Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God ends the war with sin in a unique way. The king dies. Usually in history, this would mean the opposing force would win. But God sent his son to be the peace offering. And because Jesus lays down his life willingly in obedience to God the Father, God the Father raises him back to life. His sacrifice atoned for our sins. Those he washes in the blood of his sacrifice are stained clean, not red. The blood of God's only son is worth the lives of many people. The creator sacrifices himself for the creature so that there can be peace. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. While there is still breath in your lungs, there is hope and time to be made right with God. God also says in his word, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah 1, verse 18. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, verse 9. 
For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, verse 13. Come to Christ today. Don't wait. You don't know when you will leave this earth and have to give an account for yourself before an angry God. Hebrews 10, 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. If it was just us trying to make arguments with one another... It would be a futile process. But your word is alive, and it does not return to you void. We ask this morning that it would have the desired effect, either harden or soften the hearts of those who have heard. Save whom you will, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 483, The Brown. I'm going to ask Andrew to come up and lead us, please. Please stand with me when you find 483 in the hymnal.
matter where we go in this world, no matter what befalls us, Lord, you are aware of us. Nothing comes to us that doesn't come to you. You are our Savior, you are our guide, you are our holy provider. Without you, Lord, we are nothing. We are doomed, and there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. You have given us a Savior. Take a 10-minute break, and we'll regather for the Lord's day. We're dismissed.